You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. All righty, here we go again. We got another great week of podcasts lined up for you guys this week, and uh, we're going to kick things off with a gentleman named Mark Sing from Exo Mountain Gear, and today we get into a little bit of a com- conversation about Exo Mountain Gear, their packs that they make. Um, it's actually quite a short uh, podcast, so I might need to get him on again. But uh, the majority of the conversation is something that I've been interested in lately, and it's because Mark is from Missouri. And for the past five years, he's been he's been heading out west to do some western hunting in states like Colorado. And I am just starting out doing my western trips. So this uh, this conversation today is going to be about things that we need to pay attention to, or things that we need to consider, whether that's gear or training our bodies, or you know things that you don't necessarily need or do think about in the whitetail woods, but things that are very important when you're, you know, five, six miles away from your truck or you're camping overnight or like a, a a backpacking DIY trip. Uh, so we're going to get into a conversation a little bit about Western hunting and, uh, for first timers, because I consider myself a rookie. Um, Mark, he has been doing this for five or six years now, and he's, uh, probably just breaking out of that uh, newbie stage uh, and you know he's going to kind of guide us through some of the learning experiences that he's gone through over that uh, period of time and uh, the conversation is just awesome so I'm not going to waste any any more of your time uh, talking but before we get into this week's podcast Matt Klein from Exodus Trail Cameras is going to talk about their five-year warranty. Well, the first thing I'd say about our, you know, our five-year warranty is is that it's not one of those warranties where, unfortunately, like a lot of companies in this industry, in any industry for that matter, you call them up, you know, you have an issue with a product, and you kind of get the runaround about every other you know circumstance that could be at fault except for their product. So you know, so many times I've called other camera companies back when I was using other products, and 
you know, they try to blame it on batteries or SD cards or give me the runaround about this or that. And, and it got so frustrating after a while that nobody would stand up for their products that that was a big part of what in a, what went into our five year warranty. You know, our warranty, we like to call it a no BS warranty. So if you call us up at four years and 362 days, we're still going to take care of you no matter what. And that's our guarantee. So one is just having a warranty that actually means something and isn't just kind of a marketing tool was really big to us. But the reason that we're able to do that is because, uh, one, because of our direct-to-consumer model, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. Two would be the fact that we build our products to last and not to just turn around to get you through another year and then you can buy more products. We build them as tools instead of novelty items like a lot of companies unfortunately are still doing. When companies are in these big box retailers, everybody's fighting for the bottom dollar. Everybody wants to try to make a, a profit margin and there's a lot of different people trying to get their money out of, out of these products. So what happens is quality ends up getting driven down. And that's the number one most important thing to us here at Exodus is putting out products that we, we're not going to lose sleep at over at night, you know, wondering if they're going to stand up to the test of time. And, and that's something we hang our hat on and we're very proud of. If you guys want to find out more about Exodus trail cameras, be sure to visit exodusoutdoorgear.com. And if you do decide to purchase one of their cameras, use the discount code nine fingers. That's the number nine followed by the word fingers, and you will be able to save $20 on your purchase. So that's pretty good. Now let's get into today's podcast with Mark Hulsing from Exo Mountain Gear. All right, on the phone with me now, and I'm going to try to get this right, is Mark Hulsing from... Nailed it. Nailed it? Nailed it. Perfect. Perfect. And, uh, well, I'm not going to try to introduce you. Why don't you go ahead and tell us what you do for a living, who you are, where you live, all that kind of stuff. Okay, fun. Um, so I, I live in the Midwest. I'm in Missouri. Um, for a living, my day job... Um, is kind of computer nerdery. I work for a college in IT, kind of doing computer programming. Um, and then, so that that's kind of the professional side of things on that in terms of a day job. And then, I guess in terms of probably why we're on this call, uh, in terms of hunting, I kind of started off um, blogging. It was kind of a, really started with no purpose other than kind of recording my own hunts and writing thoughts down and things like that. And it kind of started with the whitetail side of things. And then four or five years ago, you know, I had always kind of wanted to go out West and hunt elk. And I just finally decided for a bunch of reasons, I got to make it happen. I got to do it. Um, I was 28 ish at the time and had a young uh, baby and it seemed like a horrible time to pull it off. <laughs> you know how that goes when you have like a young family and you're already, you know, right. juggling a ton of things, but right. it was, you know, for a bunch of reasons, I was like, I got to make this happen. So since I was kind of blogging on my own anyway, I started sort of documenting how I was learning and preparing to go from a Midwest whitetail hunter to venturing out West and trying to figure this elk thing out. And so that journey, um, in terms of writing and learning and all that kind of went on for a few years. And that was at the blog, uh, soul adventure, S O L E adventure.com. And so along the way, as I, as I got writing, I got uh, other opportunities to write for places like bowhunting.com and got 
kind of super into the geeky archery side, started writing for a bunch more places, um, even got to write some awesome print articles, was in Field and Stream and Bowhunting Magazine and stuff, and it was a huge honor. Nice. Um, wrote quite a bit with uh, what I know is one of your good buddies, Mark Kenyon at Wired to Hunt. Right. So I wrote uh, with him for quite a bit. And anyway, along along those lines and, you know, as, as far as writing and getting sort of deeper into the quote-unquote industry, I met a bunch of cool people. Um, and this all leads me to where we're at today is working with, uh, Steve Speck at Exo Mountain Gear. Steve was a friend who I met through, um, his archery shop slash site. He has an online archery shop, SNS Archery, and really was a customer, became a friend. He launched some other businesses, solid broadheads, things like that, and helped them and kind of as friends. And since I knew, um, some of the technical side of computers, since I knew some of kind of like the marketing side of things um, have helped him with Exo Mountain Gear kind of sort of since day one. And today we kind of run, um, you know, a bunch with Exo Mountain Gear and I help him out. And we have the Hunt Backcountry podcast, which we started about a year ago. So Steve and I kind of co-host that. And I guess that's my long, long rambling answer. Cool. I got I got like several questions out of what you just told us, but let's get into, you know, the podcast you you guys do what uh-huh. does the the it's the hunting backcountry podcast right yeah hunt backcountry hunt, hunt backcountry what yep. uh what do you guys cover in that podcast yeah it's um obviously on backcountry hunting so uh typically western uh focused hunting it's not necessarily species specific but you know obviously cover um more of the big game out there in terms of elk and mule deer is a big target We've recorded with some guys who love blacktail and we've talked about, you know, moose hunts and all kinds of um, sort of big game hunts, mostly Western focused. Um, You know, we dive into really getting uh, deep on species specific hunting stuff such as elk. We've, you know, we'll talk. We had an awesome two part interview with Paul, uh, the elk nut Medell, who's just one of these guys that is sort of a self-taught kind of old school hunter who's been literally studying and hunting elk for you know decades and just has so much passion still to this day and so much to learn and so we have like a two-part episode with him and just learn a ton about elk behavior and elk tactics we'll be talking about you know preseason scouting gear uh, archery setups kind of the a to z um on really anything to do with backcountry hunting and i think it's kind of a good it's a good mix with steve and i you know, I'm a Midwest guy who goes out West each year to hunt. And so I kind of have that from a Midwest perspective, from more of a beginner perspective. And Steve lives out in Boise, Idaho and can um, somewhat hunt in his backyard and chase, you know, big game. And so he's been hunting longer than I have. He's more immersed in it, more of an experienced hunter. And so I think it's a good perspective to have both of us to kind of you know, hit our guests or hit topics from, you know, uh, more of a, a new guy perspective and a guy going West perspective and then more the advanced experienced, uh, super hardcore guy who's out there doing it all the time perspective. Okay. Now I'm, I'm probably right now where you were four or five years ago. All right. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been on one, I'm going to say Western trip up in the mountains. All right. Uh-huh. I, and then my other quote unquote Western trip was Western Nebraska. And I was chasing mule deer and, uh, whitetails and pronghorn in the sand hills. And, oh, very cool. Yep. And, um, 
it it can be for for someone like me who is a, I call myself a flatlander because <laughs> no matter here. no matter how hard you train that f- those first couple days in the mountains you're like <gasps> yeah what did I do it's like right. like you didn't do anything to prepare for it but um what are what are some things that you've learned I guess that just come right off the top of your head as a guy who is interested in making that first you know, that first trip or that second trip out West, what are some things that you've learned or some failures that you've had or some, some struggles that you've come across to prepare for a Western trip? Yeah. I mean, the, those words you just mentioned, like learning lessons and failures and struggles, um, those are the things that come to mind because as much as information is good, I mean, you know, I put out a podcast to try and inform hunters and I've written articles and magazines and websites to try and inform hunters. And as great as those things are, um, you just have to go experience it. I mean, those lessons, those struggles, those failures, they might suck in the moment, but really those are the things that sort of help you grow and give you, you know, a true knowledge. I mean, one of the disconnects is there's obviously head knowledge and then there's like real firsthand experience. And so that was one of the things that I really wrestled with, um, as I was sort of becoming a Western hunter is I, I did as much research as anybody. And not only was I doing research, but then I was turning around and sort of sharing what I thought was most helpful in articles and things like that. So I had a ton of like head knowledge, but I was short on, you know, real world firsthand experience. And I think, you know, that's, that's just what comes to mind is just go, just learn, like, don't think you're going to have it all together, expect to fail. Um, but just go experience it anyway. It's just an absolute amazing thing to hunt in the mountains and yeah. then even, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was, no, continue your thought. No, I was just gonna say even, you know, the most experienced, the most, um, successful, you know, like anything else you can, you know, talk about whitetails and, you can watch the guys on TV or the read the guys in the magazines and there's always a disconnect, you know, between what most of us see in the media and most, what most of us experience. And so it's just, again, it's so easy. I'm sure it's something you've covered about seeing people kill giant animals or be consistently successful versus what most hunters experience. And it's the same way with hunting the mountains. Like it's very, very difficult. You begin to look at success rates out West, say, you know, most units in Colorado and archery season for elk, like, you know, we're talking like single digit success rates and that's out of everybody. Right. And so don't expect as a first timer to be like, Oh yeah, this is, you know, a sure thing. Like, yes, be positive. Yes. Go in confident. But at the same time, like just know that it's going to be tough. And like, that's part of the journey. I think that's what makes it really so great. Like it's, I'm so, um, I don't want to say just addicted to it, but I'm so passionate about it. I'm so hooked. I'm so into it because I know what a challenge it is and right. it just makes it that much more satisfying. Right. And you can't beat the views, right? Oh man. Like just, <laughs> just to be out there. Like if it's, if it's nothing more than hiking around the mountains with your bow, uh, that's freaking phenomenal just seeing it. But then if you're, you know, if, dude, like the first time you get you know, super close to an elk. The first time you have a bull screaming in your face, like, you know, cross your legs, don't pee your pants and have a blast. It's, there's nothing like it. Right. Right. Now, and and it's funny that you say that about going West and, and, you know, going in confident and, you know, having faith in your equipment and all that stuff, but then realizing that 
the success rates are very low. And, and it's funny because uh, last week I was actually looking at different zones to go elk hunting in. And I went on to the Colorado State website and was looking around. And you're right, 5%. You know, there's, there's, a thousand, there's over 1,000 tags uh, yeah. that are given out for a particular zone. And maybe 20 are harvested, if that, right. maybe yeah. seven. With, a, with And that's just with a bow. Right. Right. And it, it just it kind of is a, an awakening where it's like, OK, if you're going to put the time and energy in, into doing this, you have to really focus and you can't really half ass it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's you know, you think about those percentages and once again, that's that's everybody. Right. So that's guy who's it's his first hunt. That's a guy who has been doing it for 20 years. That's a guy who lives there and knows those animals and knows that area. That's a guy who's coming in blind from, you know, another state like I often am. And so, yeah, I mean, big picture, um, I'm certainly not trying to talk guys out of it. What I'm trying to do is talk guys into it and just say, freaking right. go, like, do as much research as you can, do as much scouting, do as much preparing, for sure nail your gear, um, do everything you can to be successful. Um, but just face the reality of it and sort of embrace that challenge and embrace the suck. Right. Right. Now you mentioned a little bit about, you know, there was a, there was a trigger for you. Um, you already had a kid and it's like, I got to go West. Why for you, what was it that all of a sudden was like, okay, I take it you're a whitetail hunter too, right? Right. Yep. So there's a point where there was a trigger for you and that trigger, you know, a voice or something was like, go West young man or you know, whatever. <laughs> what, what explain that trigger and what kind of amounted to you jumping? Yeah. I, I think it can be different for everybody. For me, it was a really, um, really personal reasons. I guess we'll have to get into a personal story, which is cool. Hopefully it won't be boring, but, um, you know, like I said, I was, you know, pretty young, had a kid. Um, it's just a crazy time in life when, you know, you're trying to work career and family and adjusting to all kinds of things. Like I said, it was kind of a horrible time to take it on. But for me, a huge factor was um, my grandfather, who was many reasons the way or the reason that I hunt at all. Um, you know, he he kind of got me into things when I was fairly young. He took me, you know, I can think of like my first squirrel hunt. And then I, I to this day, I have a freaking mounted stuffed squirrel like who does that. But <laughs> it's such a great memory for my grandpa and, you know, catching fish. And he always had a place in the quote unquote country, which is, you know, I live near St. Louis, so kind of near the city. But he would always get me outdoors and take me on adventures. And, you know, back at that time when five, six years ago when that was, um, you know, he got diagnosed with cancer. Um, and went through kind of a, a pretty long battle with that. And over the course of that time, you know, more than ever, I got down to whitetail hunt at his place. And it, it there's deer there. It wasn't a phenomenal place to hunt. But, man, it was like the best place to hunt for me because it was, you know, times that I got to share with him and interact with him. And he was at a stage where he couldn't get out and hunt anymore. And so, you know, I'd be down there and wake up, you know, well before the butt crack of dawn and, you know, want to be in a tree an hour before daylight. And I'd get up and be getting dressed and go out to head to the tree stand. And, you know, grandpa was already up like anxious, like a kid on opening season. And he wasn't even going hunting. He was just excited for me. Um, and so he'd be sending me off and, you know, I'd do a morning hunt, come back in and get to spend time with him and share stories and stuff like that. So 
you know, it was a special bit where we hunted or I hunted down there in, in that time when he was battling cancer. And, you know, we had conversations and one of those conversations was about how he always wanted to go um, hunt out west. And, you know, he was one of these guys that was of the generation, um, like many were, who was just, he just quietly did what had to be done, right? Like he was a roofer, um, just worked his tail off for, you know, 40 plus years doing hard work. Um, and, you know, he was he was busy taking care of his family and busy, you know, making a living the modest way that he did. And, you know, life, you know, and responsibilities, I guess, in a way, prevented him from making the time to go like chase some of those dreams that he had like hunting out west and so i kind of looked and i was like well i'm in that same spot right like i'm trying to bust tail and i'm trying to take care of my family as best as possible and you know in a way it was selfish but in a way it was like you know grandpa's here and what if i'm here in 45 years saying i wish i would have or i wish i could have right and so for me it was just eye-opening to say you know if now's not a good time but if I wait five years, it's not going to be a good time. Like I just have to decide to make this happen. And so part of it was, you know, certainly for me. And then honestly, part of it was like, I'm going to do this for you, grandpa, you know? And as the story had it, um, you know, I kind of decided to go and make this happen. Um, and he passed away in the meantime. And so on my first trip out West, it was super special just to kind of, um, make that trip happen. It was, two months after he passed away that, uh, in September I got to go chase elk for the first time. And so, you know, that again, super personal story, but that was part of the reason, um, that I just kind of decided that it had to happen. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a little bit different of a story than kind of why I jumped into it. Like when I was in my twenties, right. Or, or even before that, right. All I did was, you know, I, I hunted hard and I hunted and whatnot, but, I was in like this mode where I thought that partying and going to bars was the cool thing to do. And Mm -hmm. it took me until I was like 30 years old to have a a realization like, dude, you just wasted 10 years of your life. Right. And for me, I've, I always wanted to do all these things, but I didn't have money because I was blown it at bars or, you know, putting that money or time especially time. And that's what, that's what the realization is, is time. It's the most important commodity there is because you can't, once it's gone, you can't get it back. Right. Yeah. So for me, it was, I, I'm not going to be the kind of person who wastes any more time. Now, my question to you is bow hunting, bow hunting, or, or even planning these trips out, out West is really, especially for a Midwesterner, because you have to travel however many hours to get to, you know, get there. I'm, I'm thinking 12 hours for you just to even get to Colorado, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, 12 ish to get to Denver. So like right. just to get to the front range of the mountains is 12. Right. And then, yeah, like it's, you know, where we're hunting, um, where we have been hunting in Colorado's, you know, typically at least, you know, 16, 18, 20. Right. Right. Yeah. So my question is, uh, is your wife mm-hmm. with it, it's, it's a little selfish. And I mean, I'm saying that to, to me too, because, you know, yeah. they, they go, they have to deal with the kids in the house right. while we're up quote unquote, having fun doing whatever it is that we're doing. How does your wife react to these trips where, 
she stays home and she's got to watch the kids? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's, you know, the, I think the bigger question there, and you kind of hinted at it is it's not just the trip, right? Like there's a lot of time that goes into the trip up front. I mean, there's a lot of time that you're spending getting ready. Um, I would relate it to what you said about, you know, how you wasted time in your twenties and then you sort of woke up and it was like, man, what did I blow? Right. Um, for me, just the way that I'm wired, I have become, um, more disciplined, I think more effective, um, hopefully a better husband and father over the past five years as I've pursued hunting, I've become, um, I think just a better man. And those are related. And what I mean is like, you could say getting in shape physically, like a big driver for that is hunting in the mountains. Right. But then there's obviously other benefits to that. Like I'm in better shape. Um, I'm more dedicated. I'm in a better position to take care of my family because I'm in, you know, better shape and not just being a lazy bum and wasting time. Um, so that's one thing. And then, I mean, as you mentioned time, like we're all short on it, right? I, you know, we had a big family day yesterday and I really needed to get, I wanted to get, um, a hike in like a weighted hike and, you know, be preparing for September. So I was up on a Saturday at 4:40 AM and trying to knock that out and get back before they even woke up, you know? Yeah. And that's something that's, you know, been consistent for me. Like I'm trying to, um, be the best hunter that I can at the same time. Really, I do always keep that in mind of how is this affecting my wife and my kids. But for me, the hunting and the preparation for the hunting is something that I've sort of dual purposed with sort of becoming just more disciplined and like a better man. And I try to as much as possible, you know, do my thing at a time when it won't affect them or take away from them. So I'm often up super early getting stuff done. Um, it was the same way when I was writing, um, and writing a lot. I didn't want that to take away from, you know, the wife and the kids. It's the same thing with doing the podcast now. Oftentimes I'm, you know, we're recording episodes after my kids are in bed, you know, stuff like that. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, to get to the question, it's, it's for sure it, you know, the trips, especially like they can be difficult. Um, I'm, you know, typically plan on being away from home at least at least 10 days because they figure a day and a half um to get there and back each way so like three days of driving and then like a week to hunt you know you're at a 10-day trip really quick yep um and so you know it's it is selfish for sure but you know at the same time i've used the hunting as inspiration to hopefully in a non-selfish way become a better um, husband and father and a man but then, the, you know, the trip is the trip is so, so good for a bunch of reasons. Um, you know, I think any time we're out away from the day-to-day grind, it's good. I think any time we're out in the mountains, it's good. I think as men especially, there's something particular about doing something difficult, something challenging, something physical that's really good for us. And so, I mean, that is always in my mind is how can this trip make me better? How can I, as exhausted as I am, um, as hard as I hunt, how can this, you know, sort of rejuvenate me so that I come back a better man? And, and part of it has been, you know, people are different. I, I, I'm somewhat introspective. And so for me, there's been times on the mountain 
when I've, you know, realized even more how much my wife and kids mean to me. Um, There's been times where I've, because of like the quiet, because of the silence, I'm able to, I think, get a different perspective on life just because you're stepping away from the day to day. And so, you know, I use things like that to hopefully come back better than I left even, if that makes sense. No, it does. That that old saying, you know, distance makes the heart grow fonder. And uh, that was something that I realized real quick going up into the I, – I just remember it was it was dark. And as the sun was rising and we were just – we were in Wyoming and just getting ready to cross into Idaho, the sun was coming up. And I looked at the clock and I'm like, this time of the day is when I'm getting up with my kids and when I'm spending time with them. And I miss that. That chaos, mm-hmm. it was, it's, it's chaos, but you miss it because yeah. it's so, you know, it's, it's so, uh, I guess it was so important to me cause you know, family over everything. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So let's get into a little bit about what your, what your train or what your, um, prep for a Western hunt, you know, it looks like, like mm-hmm. what, are, what are you doing? Not only from a gear standpoint, but from a, from a, a physical standpoint as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, you know, several factors you got physical in terms of training, um, gear and just terms of researching what is good gear, acquiring good gear, and then kind of testing that gear is certainly another thing. Um, shooting would be a third thing that's massive. And then I think the fourth thing is sort of like, you know, the knowledge piece, whether that's scouting or learning about animal behavior or things like that. So I think those four things, um, are all essential um, when you talk about like you know the physical, the shooting, the gear, and then sort of the knowledge piece. Like those four are critical. Um, I I am always kind of looking at those four categories and trying to figure out where am I weakest right now, and then trying to you know give some more resources to that bucket, if you will. Yeah. Um, and hopefully trying to manage all that. So, um, I guess just to begin to to go at those four to high level and we can dive deep wherever you want. But in terms of the physical, you know, that I, I've kind of mentioned, um, I've used the hunting as inspiration to be in better shape. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not Joe hardcore. I'm not trying to be, you know, Cameron Haynes. Um, I'm not, you know, whatever, but I mean, the simple fact is to hunt effectively in the mountains out West, you need to be in good shape. I mean, you hear guys on all sides of the fence and honestly, I'm in the middle. I get really tired of the hype and the guys who are like, uh, you know, the super hardcore fitness people. I, I get tired of, I guess, all the talk of that. And at the same time, I'm also the guy who's like, no, it's really important. You can't just be, you know, lazy bum like I'm right. in the middle. Um, I train hard and it's become its own kind of outlet for me as well. But I mean, that's looked like different things. Um, you know, some years I've been running, um, more than ever this year, I would probably say I'm in the best overall shape that I have been maybe ever. And specifically with being in shape and in mind to hunt the mountains. Um, you know, it's one of those things where a guy who can run a marathon can get crushed in the mountains. And a guy who can deadlift 600 pounds can get crushed in the mountains. I think there's a a very interesting balance of um, strength, endurance. Um, I mean, it really, if you want to get really specific about 
hunting the mountains effectively, you can train specifically for that. Um, and so one thing that's been huge and incredibly helpful for me, um, there is a gym up in Wyoming run by this guy named Rob, uh, Rob Shaw. And he, um, he works specifically with mountain athletes and that could be anything from like a trail runner, ultra runner to a rock climber to a skier, like professionals and all those sports he's working with. Yeah. And he's working with a lot of tactical folks, whether that's, um, like special forces or SWAT, things like that. And so he, he has a very interesting gym, a very interesting philosophy. He knows a heck of a lot about performing in the mountains from that mountain athlete side of things. And he knows a heck of a lot of, about what happens to translate really well to hunting as he's done a ton of work getting guys ready to hunt the bad guys in the mountains as he's worked with a ton of military. And so he has, um, not only philosophies, but he's constantly testing his philosophies on athletes up in his gym. And then he releases programming. So something I appreciate is, um, he offers, you know, programming that you can subscribe to, or that you can just kind of purchase on your own. Rob's a guy I've talked with on the podcast and believe in his stuff so much. I didn't ask him for a discount code. I didn't ask him for free plans or anything. I just started buying his stuff and following it. And I've been doing that pretty much all this calendar year. I've used several plans of his. He has a plan specifically for um, backcountry hunting in the mountains. So it's targeting, you know, things specifically that are important that some guys might not think about, but legs are obviously critical, right? And not just endurance, not just hiking, but the strength to be going up and down, to be gaining and losing vertical. And then hopefully, if you're lucky, the strength to manage packing out heavy loads in the mountains. So that's critical. Um, The plan focuses a ton on core. And when I say core, I don't mean, you know, aesthetics of abs, but I mean really your core, your lower back, your whole trunk and having a bunch of integrity there. Because, again, if you're thinking about it, um, trekking through the mountains off trail, especially with a pack on, I mean, that takes a ton of core stability and core strength. Um, and so he, you know, long story short, has been following his stuff. I absolutely recommend it. You can go check um, all of his stuff out. Just Google um, Mountain Athlete, Mountain Tactical, Rob Shaw, Shaw, S-H-A-U-L, any of the above, and kind of check out his stuff. It's really good. Nice. So, you know, after, let's say, last year or the year before when, you you know, you realized, hey, I got to be in really good shape. Yeah. <laughs> You know, from for someone like me, it's, you know, you're still a flatlander and I busted my balls um, not last year, but the year before when I went on my elk trip, I was doing weighted packs or weighted hikes almost every day. I was doing a ton of legs. Um, I was uh, doing a ton of cardio, um, you know, like going up as high as on the treadmill as possible, you know, running up hills whenever I could. I was even wearing one of those uh, those masks. I bought one yeah, of those Yeah, like masks. the elevation mask. Yeah, it, it's supposed to, I don't know, resemble elevation when it, it really doesn't. But anyway, yeah. um, is there is there still a transition period for you once you get into the mountains? And have you noticed that, you know, the better shape you are, the, the less of a transition, the less transition it takes to get to feel comfortable up there? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a there's a ton of factors there. Um, being in good shape is certainly one of them. But 
you know, from from what I've researched and what from science has kind of hinted at, some people just flat out respond to altitude exposure differently. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's, you know, maybe physical factors there in terms of their training, but I think there's just, you know, people tend to respond differently. Um, I think I, I don't know. I, part of me is just so anxious to be there that I'm just like not even thinking about it. Like I'm just so stoked to be hiking in the mountains and hunting. Yeah. I want to say it, it doesn't affect me a ton, but there's certainly moments where it does. Yeah. Um, I think leading up to a trip, something that I've always focused on. And again, this is based off of, you know, kind of my own research and looking at the science of things is being hydrated and staying hydrated is super, super important when you're going from, um, you know, being a flatlander to hitting elevation, right? Like I'm sitting right now at my house at maybe 400 feet, right? And, you know, <laughs> we hunt, you know, at 10,000 plus, right? So like that's a big transition. So hydration I focus on, you know, all the time, but I pay particular attention to it the whole week before the trip is a big of a pain as a butt it is when you're driving. You don't want to be chugging a bunch of water and stopping where they have to, but I pay attention to hydration then. And it really does think it, I really do think it makes a big difference, um, at least for me. But yeah, I would say being on that topic of just being super excited to get out there and get after it, start slow. Like you're packing, you're hiking with your gear. It's not a race. Like the worst thing that you can do is gas yourself on that. Yeah. The worst thing you can do is overexert yourself and start to experience um, the the symptoms of altitude sickness because there's kind of no cure for that. Like if you go hard and you find out that you happen to be one of those people that struggle with altitude sickness and you get that, like even if you stop exerting yourself physically, just continued exposure at altitude can continue to um, reveal those symptoms. And so like the quote unquote cure for altitude sickness is to get out of the freaking altitude. Like right. it's, it's to go down the mountain a bit. And so, you know, ideally, um, they say, you know, most people don't experience altitude sickness, um, above like, or they don't start to until like 8,000 and above. And ideally they say don't gain more than a thousand feet per day. But I don't know about you, but I don't have time to like Right. get to 7,000 feet, climb to 8,000 way today, climb to 9,000 way today, et cetera. Like you just, you know, you got to hunt. Right. I can remember, um, a trip to Colorado one year with my buddy and he had a little bit more mountain experience than I did. And we were, uh, attempting to climb a 14er and, uh, we started off at about, uh, 10.5, uh, no, 10, five or 11. And, uh, it was like an all day hike we had planned and we got to about a thousand feet from summit and then a storm came in and then I had to run, then we ran back down and this is like, get, got there late the night before, got up early, drove to the, the trailhead, got up halfway, turned around and then went to a different mountain 14er and it was Mount Evans. And we've got, oh, okay. in, we got into the parking lot of, uh, at the top of the mountain almost where you can park to where Mount Evans is at. And I just remember puking my guts out for an hour while my buddy went on the trail. Cause I couldn't do it because yeah. of altitude sickness. So this trip that I went to Idaho, I, I didn't want to fight that. So I ended up getting a prescription for, um, whatever those pills are that, mm -hmm. that prevent you from getting altitude sickness. Mm -hmm. So that was something that I 
you know, instead of fighting it or dealing with it, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to get the pills and that helped me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good, um, a good solution. I've heard good things about those. I haven't tried them. One thing that I neglected to mention, but we've been doing the last few years is we kind of mentioned how, uh, for us, we can get to Denver and, you know, 12 hours and then onto the hunting grounds. It's another, you know, say six or eight, what have you. We've been staying the night, um, instead of just pushing to the trailhead, we've been staying the night, get, getting west of Denver, getting some elevation, you know, finding a, one of these mountain towns that's, you know, at 8,000 or above, and just getting a hotel and getting one last good night of sleep. Right. You're sleeping at altitude. You're not doing anything, but you're theoretically already starting to um, get yourself uh, acclimatized to the elevation because you're just spending the night at 8,000 plus, even though you're in town, right? Right. You're getting a last good night of sleep in bed, um, and then you're, you know, carrying on with say the last six or whatever hours of the drive for us, and then we're going in, we're getting to the trailhead rested, we're getting to the trailhead having been at um, altitude for a bit, and I think that probably is um, been really helpful for us. So now let's transition a little bit to gear and, uh, I'm, I'm in this, I'm in this, uh, period right now where that's, that's the thing that I'm, I have to, to focus on is gear. I kind of know what I need to do to get ready for the mountains physically. I know that, you know, it's very important to shoot your bow and shoot your bow at long distances because shop shot opportunities in the mountains are not necessarily close like, uh, like the whitetail stand, if you want to say. And, uh, so I'm, I'm in that period now where I'm doing a lot of research and reading on, on gear, trying to figure out what, what's best for me. And, um, you know, you have a certain, everybody kind of has a budget. Some budgets are higher, some budgets are lower and, you know, trying to make that fit into whatever gear I need for whatever hunt I'm going on. What, um, what are, what are some things that you found over the last five years from a gears pr- perspective that are, I guess, bullet points that everybody really needs to focus on when they're starting to, to plan for a Western trip? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can get into specifics. I mean, the, the first thought that comes to mind just in terms of what I've done wrong and what I've seen guys do wrong is what you don't bring is as important as what you do bring. Right. Um, and so many guys are, you know, oh, this would be good just in case, or, oh, I'll have this just in case. And, you know, I'm not an ultralight, you know, uh, gram weenie, but at the same time, like having your gear be as streamlined and light as possible is uh, critical to your own comfort, to your own energy levels and everything like that. I mean, what you're bringing into the mountains, you're bringing it, you're humping it on your body and you don't want to be bringing more than you have to. And so it just as important as you know tent x first tent y is streamlining what you really need and bring you know essentially those things and and you know sure like i'm not saying well don't bring a first aid kit because you're not going to need it like there's certain things you need to bring just in case but don't bring like you know three lights just in case don't bring you know three different size knives just in case stuff like that is where you know people go wrong and that's that's you nailed it for me. All right. So uh, when I went, I went with Mark Kenyon, right. And, uh, 
he, he sent me a list of all these things. So I get online and I'm buying all the stuff that I need, you know, fire starters, these, you know, these little packets, you know, a space blanket, uh, all, you know, here's a whistle with uh, matches in it and uh, it's compass. And, you know, I got, I, I had pounds of gear that I did not even touch when I was right. up there. You yeah. know, and, and yes, it would be one of those things where in an emergency, it probably would have helped me, but I know that I, even in an emergency setting, I wouldn't have need needed to use all of it. So that's one thing that right off the bat, I learned where, okay, my pack doesn't need to, didn't need to be 60 pounds walking up or, you know, I think it was like 50, it was between 50 and 55 was my yeah. was my pack and that was for a roughly a two and a half hour hike from the truck to where we camped so you know even taking five pounds out of that would have been a completely different story walking up walking up the trail right so sure. what are from a from a gear you know and you can be as specific as possible on this what are some thing what are some um, items that beginners really need to focus on for for their first, very first, uh, Western mountain hunt. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to answer that question. One thing, just going back to what we covered, just want to highlight the point of doing trips at home, like doing dry runs. Um, if you're new to backpacking is so important for figuring out what gear you really need and what gear you don't. Like I always play the game three strikes you're out. Meaning if I carry you on three trips and don't use you, you're out of my pack. I'm not, I don't need you. Um, again, there's a few exceptions to that, such as for like a essential first aid things, but you know, again, just get some experience. That's one thing I did have, um, when I started this sort of journey into learning is I, w- I had already done backpacking and things like that. And so some of the gear philosophy I had a bit more nailed down, but if you're new to that, like, I don't care where you live just get out and do overnighters and just sort of figure this whole gear thing out of what you need and what you don't. Right. Right. Um, in terms of big items, um, you know, I always start with something that's gear, but isn't gear in the way that you think. Um, and that's just with footwear. Right. Um, you, your feet go bad on your hunt, your hunts over. Right. You get massive blisters that make it painful to walk. You're useless. Like, especially if you're chasing elk, you got to be able to cover ground. If You know, that's the same for a lot of Western species with mule deer and things like that. But you have to be able to cover ground. And if your feet are hamburger, your hunt, like, good luck. Like, you might not have to pack it up and go home, but you're not going to be able to hunt effectively. Right. And so taking care of your feet is just super important. So, um boot selection is really important. Unfortunately, it's one of those things that's incredibly personal. And what I mean is everybody's foot is different, right? And so I may, I can make a boot recommendation right now that have been phenomenal for me, but maybe for the way that your foot is shaped, it just flat out doesn't work well. Right. Um, but in general, you know, I would try and select boots from a place that has a decent return policy where you can at least get them, wear them around your house uh, for quite a bit, go up and down stairs, do like whatever you can to try and make a good boot selection. And you're probably going to have to do some experimentation, which I know sucks because good boots aren't cheap. Right. Right. Um, you know, in, in terms of recommendations, things that have worked f- well for me on the super stout beefy end, 
something like a Loa Tibet, which is like a mountain boot that's built for carrying quite heavy loads. Absolutely phenomenal boot, again, if it fits your foot. Mm-hmm. In terms of its performance and its durability and then standing up to packing out a crap ton of meat on your back, I can't say enough good things about those. Um, they are heavy. They are stiff. Something that's not as heavy, not quite as robust that um, I really like a lot is something like a Solomon Quest 4D. Um, it's a good boot uh, for backpacking for guys who don't necessarily want the stiffness or the weight or feel like they need the um, crazy amount of support that something like a Loa would provide. But there's a lot of good boots out there. Um, it's all about what fits you well, but it's such, such an important decision, I think. What would you what would you say is a good break in period? Because you, we all know you don't want to buy a pair of boots and then the next day go hike ten miles in the mountains, right? So what yeah. what would you say is a good break in per- period for a pair of boots? Yeah, and part of that depends on the boot, right? So something like the Loa, since it's um, a ton of leather versus the Salomon, that's more th- synthetic. The low is just built way more beefier. Like it could have a longer break in than a boot that's a little bit softer, a little bit more flexible out of the box. Um, Like my Salomons, I'll throw them on when they're new and just flat out go with weight and not even care. The low has had a bit of a break in. Um, You know, it's tough to say again because there's so many variables, but wear them around around the house as much as possible. I was wearing the freaking things like in my office and this was all to see if they would work. So I, you know, the return policy of not being able to wear them outside or whatever. Great. But I'll wear them around the house pretty much 24 seven while I'm there. I'll wear them in the freaking office. Like I'll do whatever possible to make sure that they feel well. And ultimately you're going to have to make a decision. Obviously start with smaller hikes, um, from there. Um, you know, in terms of if you are struggling, with blisters or things like that, um, try liner socks. So you can get, they're super duper thin liner socks that'll go below, um, or on your foot before your main sock. And sometimes that helps. Um, Luco tape is really good. So you can buy blister patches and blister treatment or whatever, but there's a, it's, you know, used in the medical field. You can get on Amazon or whatever, but Luco tape, I think it's, L-U-E-K-O tape, Luco tape is really good stuff if you do start to struggle with hot spots or blisters. Um, and then, you know, something that, again, is unfortunate, but a lot of the insoles that come in boots, even really, really good boots, are junk. Um, I mean, just take it out and look at it. And so sometimes insole selection can make a really good boot a fantastic boot. Um, there's things out there like Superfeet, which I have used. Um, there are insoles from a company called Lathrop and Sons that they have worked and developed that are phenomenal. I highly recommend them. And while I mentioned Lathrop, this isn't a commercial, I have no affiliation with them, but they offer a great service, um, in that they are, they're foot doctors. Like they know the science of feet. They understand everything about feet. They also happen to be really, really stinking passionate hunters. And so they, Lathrop and Sons, like small shop, online shop, have online services all about helping hunters making good decisions. And so they offer everything from being willing to talk to them on the phone and talk about boot selection to full on out 
they will send you like custom foot molds and have you step in this thing and then send it back to them and they will completely dissect your foot anatomy and tell you a boot that would work for you. And they're just super fun dudes. We had them on the podcast as well. If you want to go check that out, that's crazy. We had a fun conversation with them, but so, you know, they're more than willing, like I said, to do those services, like the custom fitting, which they charge for. But again, just guarantee if you reach out to them by phone or email, they'd love to chat and just in general and kind of give you some free advice. And, um, they sell boots, you know, from certain brands. And so something like them, if you have really struggled with boot selection, I would definitely call them. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's, and that's, uh, perfect. Everybody tells me number the, the most important part of any of gear person, you know, in, including boots is your, is your footwear because yeah. without it, you're screwed basically. Yeah. Yep. Now the next, the next thing is part of gear is your, your clothing. You're uh-huh. not necessarily, I, I'm the, I'm under the impression or on my opinion is camo and clothing like gear, hunting gear are two different things. You know, yeah. you're not buying necessarily your, yeah, there's, there's a lot of cool camo patterns out there, but you're not basing your, your clothing gear on the camo pattern. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. um, talk a little bit about what you found out. Um, maybe, you know, what you found out is necessary and maybe unnecessarily uh, unnecessary for, uh, some of those mountain trips and, and, you know, right now the huge, the huge trend is the, these layering systems, which I'm a huge believer in. They obviously work. I used to be that, that guy who was wearing like five hooded sweatshirts when, mm-hmm. during, you know, during late November when it's so cold, you know, you can barely draw your bow back. Oh man, to, dude, to, when you're sitting right. still in a tree stand and it's cold, like, yeah, just bundle up. Right. Right. And then to now I, I made the transition, uh, was it last year? I think, yeah, last year was my first year wearing Sitka and, you know, with all the layers, I'm wearing less layers. I'm wearing, you know, I'm more comfortable. I I can sweat going to the stand. It's designed to do all these things, you know, and it's not just Sitka, you know, you got all these, there's several other brands out there that do the same thing. Talk to me uh, about your experience with, you know, making that transition from the whitetail woods to the mountains and maybe what gear, um, what gear first timers should look at. Yeah. Yeah. Clothing is a huge, a huge factor again, from the perspective of performance, from the perspective of comfort. I mean, if you're freaking cold, wet and tired and you're out there on day three and not seeing animals, you know, you can talk yourself into walking out of there maybe, but maybe if you're warm and a bit more comfortable, like it's truly a factor in continuing to hunt or hunt more effectively, or at least with a a better mindset. So clothing can be big. Um, you know, and it's one of those areas as well where guys can go way overboard with extras and end up carrying five pounds of clothes they don't need. Right. Um, I guess to start off, like first for me in the mountains, assuming we're talking about you know, probably primarily archery season would be merino wool. And it just has so many benefits. Um, A huge one is the stink factor. I mean, you can sweat in merino and it just flat out doesn't hold odor like synthetics do. Um, Even treated synthetics, whether, 
you know, you have all the different options on the market that hunting companies are touting, you know, carbon and silver and bamboo and proprietary, you know, maybe they made it up technology. <laughs> um, but Merino just flat out Merino wool, not treated just is natural, naturally antimicrobial. Um, it, it is incredibly comfortable. It's not, you know, if you guys are hearing wool and you're not familiar with Merino wool and you're thinking of like this itchy, nasty sweater and how could you hunt in that? Merino is a totally different animal. Um, so for me, uh, my clothing in the mountains is based around Merino. Um, you know, I happen to use a lot of first light, but you know, Sitka is making Merino and Kuyu's making Merino and, um, there's other brands making Merino. Um, you know, there's non hunting Merino, meaning it's not camo, but it's still good stuff. Right. And so that's one of those areas just to get back to the budget where guys can save on clothes is don't think you have to have everything be a matchy matchy in your camo, right. although I'm OCD and it's cool. Right. But you know, get away from that philosophy. If you're trying to save money, you know, use different brands, use what you find on sale, use different patterns and then consider picking up some key layers that are freaking not hunting specific, right? Like you can get away with some decent earth tones. I think if you're careful about movement, right? right. Um, so long story short, Merino has a ton of benefits. Go read up on it if you're not familiar with them, but I, I guess going head to toe for me, you know, there's Merino wool comes in different weights or like thicknesses essentially. And so for me, there's two tops that are essential. Um, I'll, I'll mention the first light names, but you can, you know, look on your own for comparable from other Sitka and whoever, but a really lightweight Merino top with a quarter zip. Um, it's like a crew neck top. Um, it's the Lano from first light is their model name, but it's a lightweight Merino. You can wear it when it's 80. Um, you can wear it when it's 60. I literally put it on when I start my hunt and I'll take it off if we're taking a break to let it dry out or whatever. But it's the shirt I wear from end to beginning, whether it's, you know, four days or seven days. I just, I wear it the whole time. Yeah. Um, and it, like I mentioned, it's good and a wide range of temperatures. So that's essential. I mentioned the quarter zip is a factor that I think is really important because, you know, if you're hiking up a slope, even though it's a lightweight shirt, being able to vent that quarter zip is really nice just to get a bit more airflow. And on the first light one specifically, it's a pretty deep zip, so you can kind of get some uh, get some air moving in there. So on top of that, a second merino layer is good. Um, the first light one I happen to use is the Shama. Again, there's comparable ones from other brands, I'm sure. But it is like a midweight merino. The Shama from first light you can get with a hoodie, which I like. And so it's essentially this this light merino piece and this midweight piece. I'm wearing one or two or both of those pretty much the entirety of the hunt. So if you know we wake up in the morning and it's in the 30s, I'm just wearing those two things because as soon as I start hiking, I'm going to be plenty warm in those two. Right. And then as the temperatures start to increase or my um, physical exertion level increases, I take that mid um, weight one off and I'm just down to that lightweight one and I'm going to wear that all day until it starts to cool down again at night and then put that on. So those two are just like flat out just essential in my mind. Um, you know, it will even in September, even early September, if you're up high, especially it's going to get cold at night. 
um, especially if you're, depends on the style of your hunting, but if you're going to be sitting doing some glassing at first light or at last light, you're going to need some sort of insulation besides those two. So a, you know, for lack of a better term, a puffy jacket is really nice. Um, a good warmth to weight ratio. Um, again, a ton of options on the market. Go with where you can find a deal. I happen to do really love the first light one called the Uncompagre. Um, it's a synthetic piece. There's always a big um, sort of decision to be made between synthetic or down when it comes to insulation, whether that's sleeping bags or jackets or what have you. Personally, I prefer synthetic on a jacket um, just because, you know, it's not quite as delicate. It can be worn in wet conditions. Um, and, you know, most of them are still uh, quite light for the warmth that they provide. They pack away next to nothing, you know, like the first light one can, you know, roll up into its own pocket. So that top, I'm not wearing it a ton when I'm out there, but when I need it, it's absolutely invaluable. Um, it also makes, since it, you know, can pack into its pillow, it makes a, or pack into its pocket, it makes a great pillow for the tent at night. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, that's kind of tops pants. I've tried a ton of different things. Um, first light has merino wool pants, which do have a ton of benefits again from the stink factor, from a breathability factor. Um, they've held up really well for me. They do have some challenges in terms of durability. If you're hunting in like really brushy, thorny, super thick country, merino wool can tear. Um, so, you know, merino pants, um, have it, their benefits, but they're not super common anyway. Most of the time when you're looking at pants from Sitka or First Light or Kuyu or whoever, you're looking at a synthetic. Um, I don't think you need something lined, um, in terms of a pant, especially for archery season, even though it's going to be cold at night, you don't need a beefy pant. You don't want a super warm pant. Even if the high is only in the forties, if you're chasing elk, you're going to be hiking around. You're not going to need something insulated, something fleece lined, etc. That's my opinion. Um, yeah. What about, have, what about rain gear? So rain gear, um, I don't know if I'm the best guy to ask this question to. I'm not recommending that people do what I do, but I will totally play rain gear as kind of an afterthought. And what I mean is it depends where you're hunting, but in most places in the Rockies, and again, for me, I'm coming from a perspective of typically September chasing elk. If there's any precipitation, most often it's a passing afternoon shower, mountain shower, and it's not prolonged and depending on the forecast i will leave rain gear in the truck and not bring it at all Man. so it's a part of my kit it's something i'm gonna have with me but like last year i'm looking at the weather forecast days beforehand i'm looking at it again before we leave the truck and i'm gonna see oh there's a 30 percent chance of an afternoon storm on two or three days i flat out don't care i'm not bringing rain gear um that's obviously a different situation if where you're hunting or what the weather's looking like, but you know, rain gear stayed in the truck for me last year. There's been years where I've carried a top, but no rain pants. Um, it also depends on your other gear choices. Um, something like that puffy that I mentioned, the Uncompagre from first light, 
is not rain gear, but it's treated with a DWR, a waterproof, or I guess a water resistant, I should say, treatment, which means it'll shed rain for quite a while. If it's exposed to rain for a super long time, it will leak. And so rain gear is one of those things that it kind of depends. It's one of those things where sometimes it's three pounds that I flat out don't want to carry because I don't think I'm going to need it. And even if it's going to rain in the afternoon for an hour, I'll go sit under a tree, right? Um, I will say that if you do feel comfortable or just like want to have the assurance of rain gear or need rain gear, rain gear is one of those things where you can spend like 40 bucks or you can spend 400 bucks on just a jacket. And so like, what's the differences, right? So, <laughs> well, I, let me tell you that because I spent 40 bucks uh, on rain gear uh, uh, two years ago and I was wet within 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And there, and I will say this, there's $40 rain gear that is excellent. It's shedding rain <laughs> from the outside. The problem is it's so freaking waterproof. It's like wearing a rubber suit. And even yeah. if you're not getting rain in from the outside, it's not breathing at all. And you're going to be soaked from the inside in three minutes. Right. So it's, it's great at keeping rain out. It's absolutely horrible at keeping you dry because it's, it's like wearing a freaking rubber PVC suit and you're going to sweat regardless right, right? right and so good rain gear is um more breathable oftentimes that's what you're paying for is something that's lighter yet more breathable um breathability is something that can be let me say this first breathability is a marketing buzzword that's thrown out a lot and doesn't necessarily mean anything so like that's the first caveat is just because you'll see waterproof breathable don't believe it okay right. but breathability can be tested and so can water resistance or waterproofness. Like, so those can be objectively scientifically tested and proved. Some companies will share those ratings and some will not. And so you're going to look at things like a breathability rating. I think it's MVTR is like the motion vapor transfer rate is what you'll see. And it's going to be in like the 30,000 range maybe, or sometimes higher or sometimes lower. So you can compare apples to apples um, if you want to get scientific, if you really want to do research on gear and if you're going to be spending better money, you can sort of guarantee that they've done some testing to prove, to prove their breathability claims. But in general, a lot of the waterproof, waterproof, breathable claims are just marketing buzzwords. Um, so, you know, again, I have experience with first light stuff. Um, I've actually worn some Kui rain gear. Like there's really good rain gear out there, but it's going to cost you a lot of money. Yeah. Um, for me, it's honestly, I have had the luxury of testing really good rain gear that I've gotten a discount. So it's like fun for me. Right. But if I'm being objective and looking at this from what I am, which is a guy on a budget and not getting a good industry type deal, I'm going to be really hesitant to spend a ton of money on rain gear if I'm hunting the Rockies in September. If I'm living in Washington, Oregon, if I'm going to Alaska, it's probably a different story. I would I would recommend if you're on a budget, A, looking at non-hunting rain gear, because most likely you're not going to need the camo pattern. Most likely you're not going to be chasing game or stalking or what have you or what have you while you need the rain gear in those rainy conditions so maybe you can get away with a navy blue rain jacket from REI right right um on a budget something good that's super common you can kind of pick it up anywhere 
and is a really good performer for the price is something like the Marmot, M-A-R-M-O-T, yep. Precip line. Um, it's kind of a good in-between of it's going to perform way better than the $40 stuff. It's not going to perform as good as the $300 stuff, but you can probably find find it on sale for 80 and for 80 it's going to perform really good. It's going to perform double better the 40 and not quite as good as the 300, but it's going to perform pretty good. Right. Right. And that's one thing that I want to mention real quick while it's on my mind is as I was preparing for these hunting trips and knowing that in a way, you know, DIY backcountry hunting and the products that are needed there and the products for hiking and backpacking kind of overlap. So I went to some, uh, places like steep and cheap and yeah, look for sure. Looked for steep and cheap.com or backcountry.com or, um, REI. I mean, those three websites right there have, they throw deals around like crazy. Yep. And so I went, I went to, uh, those websites and got like my socks for, you know, you go to a Cabela's or a Bass Pro Shop, you're going to buy your, your socks for almost full retail price when you can go to some of these other, you know, companies. And I bought my Merino socks for like eight bucks and they did fantastic. So, mm-hmm. um, there's, there's places that where, where you mentioned, you don't necessarily need camouflage hunting quote unquote hunting gear you know these backpacking and hiking uh, products will work just fine yeah now yeah, socks socks are a great one for that i tell you what is a you know we talked about merino and how much i love it i wear merino underwear oh i do like, too oh yeah and they're freaking phenomenal but think about this i have the first light merino underwear i love them i'll recommend recommend them but you don't need merino underwear from a hunting brand right like right. you can find Closeouts on merino underwear, you know, socks, all kinds of stuff. Ring gear is a great one to save on. Even pants. One of my favorite pants to hunt in is from um, what's essentially like a climbing company called Prana. They're not hunting pants. They're not camouflage. Personally, I feel you can get away without it because they offer great sort of earth tones. And pretty much every elk encounter I've had, I've been kneeling down anyway, and I'm not really cared about what my color my pants are unless they're like bright pink right right so for you can find these piranha zion pants is what they are they retail for like 80 bucks you can find them almost all the time on sale or clearance somewhere for like 55 and they're the equivalent to pants that are in terms of construction feature materials etc hunting pants that are three times that much right. and you can find them for 55 bucks but they're not camo yeah so. yeah that's and you know, a lot of my my hunting gear for a whitetail's perspective is for warmer temperatures, right? Or excuse me, colder temperatures. So during the early season, um, now that I actually have, uh, I actually have mountain, or you know, I got a pair of ascent pants from um, Sitka. You know, a really lightweight mm-hmm. pants. I I can wear those sometimes. But there's times where I'm wearing just a pair of khaki colored uh, jeans basically what is what they are, uh, Dickies, but, right. uh, you know, there's several different brands, brands of those. You don't necessarily have to have yeah, car hearts or yep, whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So now I want to, you know, we're running long here already, but I want to talk a little bit about, you know, I want to transition into Exo mountain, uh, gear in your, in your packs, but mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit, you know, we'll transition to that from this question. And that is, 
talk to us about what kind, I know it depends what kind of hunting you're doing can determine what kind of pack you need, but Mm -hmm. is there, are there certain packs, you know, for these DIY trips that, you know, some guys, they go overboard with a pack that's too big or, you know, a pack that's too small kind of talk about that, that balance that you, that needs to be considered when you're doing your first DIY hunt. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of you guys maybe tend to go too big and some of that's a factor of what we mentioned in terms of they're just carry too much gear anyway, right? Like they think they need all this stuff and therefore if they're going to fit all this stuff in a bag, they need an enormous backpack. And then since they have an enormous backpack, they have room to throw in that extra piece of gear. And so it's kind of a, kind of a sick cycle of just having way too much stuff and way big stuff. Right. Um, at the same time, you obviously need what you need and you need a pack to carry that pack, uh, selection in general, um, depends on in many ways, the style of hunting that you do. And so if you're not doing what I do, which is I'm, I need everything that I need to live and to hunt and everything for like a week. And I'm not coming back to the truck. So I need to carry all that stuff, right? I'm backpacking in, I'm six miles or whatever from the truck and I need to have everything I need. Pack selection for that is one thing. If you are hunting from the base camp or a road camp or you're planning on going out for two days and then coming back, like maybe you can get away with a different pack for that, right? And so pack selection depends on, in many ways, the style of hunting that you're doing and what you need to carry. So the place that it doesn't differ, if we're talking about Western hunting is, there's pack selection in terms of gear and hunting style. And then there's pack selection in terms of, oh, crap, I just killed something. It's really big, and I have to get it out of here. Right. And we're all going to need, hopefully, a pack to do that with, right? And so I can, you know, I can give you, again, non-hunting um, pack recommendations, great packs that you can get at REI from Osprey or what have you, that would be great packs if you're going out for three days and don't kill anything. Awesome. Like, it, you, you can have a great pack. The issue becomes the longer you're hunting, and then even if you're not going on a long hunt, but you kill an elk, like you're going to realize really quick how big an elk is once you walk up to it and it's dead and you have to do something about it. And then at that point, that's when stuff gets serious, right? And so that's when pack selection really becomes critical um, is if you're successful and hopefully when you're successful. I mean, you're you're trying to be successful, right? <laughs> right. Right. You're not, you know, yeah, it's beautiful, but you really don't want to go up there and, uh, <laughs> and just hike around, right? Your, your yeah. ultimate goal is to, to kill something and, and then bring it back. Yeah. Now, I guess let's just get right into XO Mountain Gears packs. Um, you know, I'm on your website right now. I mm-hmm. see you have four different pack selections. Is that, is that up to date and accurate? So essentially what we have um, is, and this kind of gets in the part of the way that the packs are designed, but we have one frame. So it's called our K2 frame. Um, it's, you know, we've had a similar frame out for several years now, and just this year came out with the K2 frame. It's kind of the latest and greatest iteration of our um, design philosophy. So there's the frame, and then there are three main uh, essentially bag sizes that can attach to that frame. And then there's other accessories we have. There is like a fourth, like a horn hauler pack that's for shed hunting. But essentially we have the K2 frame and then you can do 
the 2000, the 3500, or the 5500 packs, and those are all named after their sizes roughly. The 2000 um, is a unique design. The 35 and the 55 are designed almost identical, the difference between them being essentially just the size. And when I say the 2000 is unique, I mean the 2000 isn't patterned after the 35 or the 55 in the way that the 35 and 55 are patterned after each other, if that makes sense. Right. Let's talk Let's talk about the 2000. And, you know, you said that's uh, cubic uh, inches, right? Yeah. Okay. And, it's, and, and when we say 2000 or 35 or 5500, that's essentially a, a low ball rating of essentially what's the main compartment of the bag. What you'll see on all of our packs is we have um, external pockets and lids and things like that. And really when you boil things down, the 2000s, you can fit 3,500 worth of stuff in it. The 3,500, you can max that puppy out and get, you know, like 47 out of it in the 55. I mean, so they're... They're a bit bigger than they sound, just FYI, if you guys are comparing our numbers to others. Um, but yeah, that's their name. So to talk about the 2000, it's actually brand new this year. Um, we started EXO with a 35 and the 5500 based um, off of essentially multi-day hunts in the way that we tend to hunt. There's been ever-growing demand um, for a smaller pack for guys who are either doing really short trips, like maybe an overnighter maybe a couple nights or for guys who are absolutely just hunting super hard and doing day hunts or hunting from base camp or want a smaller pack for, you know, scouting season and things like that. And so the 2000 fits the bill, um, there, the difference, as I mentioned, all of these packs, um, use the same frame system and the, the frame is really the backbone, um, literally and figuratively of our system. The frame, the K2 frame, is built to be comfortable with light loads and to be as comfortable as possible and have the ability to carry heavy loads at any moment's notice. And so just in terms of a design philosophy, whether you're using the 2000 or the 5500, the big boy, our goal is that whatever bag you have, however much gear you have, we want you to be able to, at a moment's notice, when it matters, carry meat out of the backcountry. So if you're a day hunter and you find yourself three and a half miles back and you kill an elk, we don't want you stuck with your crappy day pack or your waste pack and then having to hike three and a half miles back to the truck to get a pack frame and then three and a half miles back in to where you just killed your elk to then start being able to haul meat. You just wasted seven miles and a bunch of hours and a bunch of effort when you could have had a pack that was lightweight and comfortable to hunt with, but was ready just to put meat strap on, go right away. So that's kind of the big overarching um, philosophy behind the way that we've designed things. Okay. So tell us some some uh, things about that frame that may make it different or better than some of the other frames that are on the market. Yeah. So there's, you know, the, it's like anything else when you start looking at boots or tents or whatever, like the deeper you go, the more you learn, the more you realize how much there is to it. Right. Um, for us, something that's right off the bat, super unique that really nobody else is doing is that our frame is titanium. So with the, the, Again, I'll use the phrase backbone, really the frame itself, what some 
Um, if you're familiar with backpacks, what you might hear referenced as stays, which might be aluminum or composite or even wood in some packs. For us, that's titanium. So there is, if you want to think about it, um, like think of uh, a horseshoe upside down. So meaning um, the legs of the horseshoe are at the bottom and then it goes straight up and then it rounds at the top. We essentially have a, not a horseshoe shape, but kind of similar to that, an oblong titanium frame within the pack that is at the bottom, like the legs of a horseshoe, it's free. So there's sort of two legs at the bottom and then you go up and then it's all connected. So we take a single titanium um, rod and then bend it in a particular shape, A, to fit your back well, and then B, to provide particular attributes attributes of performance. So since these titanium legs, if you will, are not attached at the bottom, they're really free to pivot with you. And then at the top, everything's connected. As I mentioned, it's one piece. There is, as you're aware, titanium is super light and incredibly strong. There is a ton of rigidity, vertical rigidity. And so for us, something that sets us apart, and you kind of have to see it and feel it, is how we can have comfort and movement with light loads, yet have rigidity for really heavy loads. And so translate that back to you might have a day pack with 15 pounds in it. Almost anything can feel good at that point, right? And in fact, what won't feel really good with 15 pounds as a day pack is an incredibly stiff frame that's built to haul 100 pounds. So think of something like um, the Alaska guide frame from Cabela's. It's an old school design. It's relatively cheap. It's really strong. It's actually really good at handling heavy loads. The problem is you don't want to hunt in it. You don't want to shoot your bow in it. You don't want to wear it for five days while you're hunting. It's really good at doing one thing, and that's hauling heavy loads. And so we've tried to take something and make the best of both worlds, something that's comfortable, something that moves with you, and then something that's, you know, as I mentioned, ready to haul right away. And so for us, that's that's the titanium frame um, that really kind of, you know, nobody else has, nobody's doing, and is a really unique design for us. So... I guess when you, you start adding weight to a pack, you know, you said anything can really feel comfortable if there's nothing in the pack. What what are specific places where people start feeling pressure when they start loading um, loading weight on their pack? And how do you guys, I guess, fix that problem to make heavier weights feel more comfortable? Yeah. I mean – there's kind of two factors there. One is what we're doing in design. And then two is how people are loading it. Um, so you can take the greatest pack on the market and you can load it bad or incorrectly. And it's not going to feel as good as it could or perform as well as it was designed to. And so how you load a pack is important. And just want to touch on that. You want to keep, um, heavier items up high and as close to your back as possible. And so think about a weight, like, Go grab a dumbbell. It's easier to hold it up and close to you than it is to hold it, like extend your arm out and load it away from you. And now you have this momentum and this mass away from your body. We're going to do the same thing with weight in a pack, and that's just in how you load it. And so with that in mind, it, it plays into how you load meat. It plays into how you want to load a week's worth of your gear, where you want to put your sleeping bag, et cetera. But then we're doing things specifically with our design 
to, to sort of help with that. So that's in big things from the titanium frame, which we covered and providing rigidity um, vertically up and down, meaning we don't want weight in the back or in the pack to feel like it's coming away from you, to fall away from you. You need vertical rigidity to hold this weight up and to hold it close. And so that's one thing. Then we talked about that pivot of moving the pack moving with you. But even in, in tiny little details, such as the compression straps on our pack, meaning when the pack is, you know, at its full volume and loaded with stuff or, you know, whether it's half full and you have these straps to sort of compress it or you put meat in and you now want to strap this meat to the pack, even the way that our compression straps are angled, if you look at them, they're all diagonal. They're going to pull the load up and towards the frame. They're not going to just pull it towards the frame. They're going to pull it up and help pull it up and towards the frame. And so, you know, from the frame design all the way to the angle of the compression straps, we've sort of been thinking about everything we can do to make it as comfortable as possible. Um, things like, you know, the the frame obviously has the shoulder harness and the hip belt, right? You know, and the, i got to give credit to Steve and Lenny. They're the co-founders of ExoMount Gear and really you know, continuing to be the brains behind, behind the design and just have done endless testing. But they made a small change this year to um, the fabric of the waist belt that you might not think has anything to do with anything, right? But it feels so much more comfortable. When they were selecting the foam that went into the waist belt, for example, they literally tested over 100 different foams, right? And you might think there's nothing to that, but some foams are really dense and really solid, and some foams are really light and really squishy. Once again, there's a pro and a con. There's a trade-off. You get something really squishy, it might feel great with a lighter load, but it's just going to freaking collapse under heavy load and not last as long in terms of durability. You get something super firm, might feel great with a heavy load, it might rub you the wrong way with a lighter load. And so, you know, everything from the foam that's in the freaking shoulder straps to the frame to the way that the the buckles are angled and designed is really kind of geared for um you know comfort and being able to haul loads right right so what is what what is this pack made out of from a fabric standpoint um there's there's several things um i mean the main material that you're going to see is cordura um, and Cordura is a, a nylon material that's used in a ton of applications. I believe pi- pioneered um, for military use. To this day, a lot of quote-unquote mil-spec gear is going to be made out of Cordura. Cordura comes in different weights um, with numerical ratings. So you might see something incredibly light, like 180 or you might see 1,000 as a rating on Cordura. And so we use Cordura in a ton of places there's other fabrics. Um, the inside of the main pack bag is lined with something called X-Pack, which is essentially um, a membrane to help keep that um, gear waterproof. Then things like our zippers are all going to have a, a water-resistant track with them. So one of my favorite aspects of the packs, and this is on um, all of the designs, there's a stretch panel or a stretch pocket somewhere. And so um, if you look at the backside, the outside of the 3500, it looks like there's nothing there. There's this plain looking swatch of fabric. But in the end, there's actually this hidden compartment there 
that's made of this super stretchy material over the Cordura that makes it so convenient to stuff in that, you know, rain gear or that extra layer that you peel off. It can kind of conform to hold almost anything. Um, the side pockets, again, on the 3500, they're going to be made of this super stretchy fabric. So they can hold something small like a headlamp or they can like stretch out and hold something like a fat Nalgene or your tripod legs and just kind of conform to whatever you need to hold in those. Um, so fabrics would be, you know, Cordura, some X-Pack, um, water-resistant lining, and then this um, stretchy fabric that's used really strategically in certain spots. Um, and that's kind of the main um, essential fabrics. Okay. Now, we've uh, I could sit here and go on for a couple more hours. Long story short, you're going to have to come back on the show and, uh, I don't know, have another conversation because I've absolutely enjoyed this today. But um, – you know, with all the other packs on the market, everybody says, you know, there's, you know, there's this great, here's why you should buy it. But, you know, there's a guy, he walks into a store or he's looking online for his, uh, his first Western pack or his next Western pack, right? Mm-hmm. Why should, why should they consider Exo Mountain Gear? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good question. Um, you know, like I said before, it, it kind of depends on what you're doing and, like I said before, and I'll say it again, there are great packs out there that aren't hunting specific. There are great packs out there that don't cost as much what we're doing, and they're great for backpacking. They're great for hunting, and a lot of things can perform really well up until the time that you kill something, and that's where things start. And even then, right? Like, so say you have your day pack, and then you have what I mentioned before, that Cabela's Guide Frame frame pack. Those two, like, they can get the job done, right? The difference would be, you know, you have two separate packs. Um, you can't hunt with the frame. You can't haul meat with the day pack. You're going to waste a lot of time, effort, and energy swapping between the two, essentially. And so I, I throw all that out there to say we are designed specifically for guys who are, you know, pretty serious about hunting and who want to hunt hard and whether they're on a day hunt or whether they're six miles from the truck on the sixth day of their hunt, they need something that they can hunt in comfortably that can hold the essentials or even hold a week's or 10 days worth of gear in the 5,500. And they need something that can haul meat out. Um, and pretty much they need a pack that can haul more than they can. And so if you want all of that in one package, that's where the field of what's out there gets really narrow and that's in what we are specializing in um, would be to have a single pack that can kind of do it all in terms of hunting comfortably carrying meat effectively um, and so so that's something that sets us apart a ton of other things that set us apart as I mentioned our titanium frame there's just nothing out there like it not only is there not something out there with that sort of shape and design there's nobody using those materials, so bringing those two together sets us apart for sure. Um, you know, something that's going to set us apart compared to what you're going to find in the stores is the fact that we're made in the States. Um, we're made, everything's domestic in the USA, and we are not in the stores. We're only going to sell online, which sets us apart. But that's something that's essential to what we do. You know, our packs aren't cheap. You're going you're gonna to spend 500 bucks to get in one of our packs, but I can tell you this, if we were, had to go retail, it's going to be way more than that, right? Because we don't have a middleman. Like, we're making everything domestic, 
and then we're selling straight to the customers and we don't have to worry about retail and markup and floor space and all kinds of stuff like that. So That's we are direct to the customer. Yeah, it's a trend for sure. And, you know, for good reason. And it allows companies to bring better quality at a better price. Perfect. Um, you know, we, just to continue, I mean, we do have a lifetime warranty. We do um, let you try the pack for free if you're kind of on the fence. So you get online and check our stuff out and you don't know if it's for you or you want to feel how it feels. Um, you know, we'll offer 30 days uh, money back, no questions asked, assuming you keep the pack in uh, original condition. But, man, load it up with some weight and hike up and down your stairs or what have you and get a feel for it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's about it. I'm, I could go on and on about <laughs> all of the details. I, I don't want to do a sales pitch. I would just say get online and check us out um, at xomountaingear.com. I have videos on YouTube and Vimeo kind of showing the pack in use or kind of detailing what's different. Something at all that we didn't you know, kind of get into is the accessories that we have or how different things integrate or why this pocket was designed to be that size. I mean, literally everything from, as I mentioned, the angle on the compression straps to the size of each pocket is kind of built with a specific for hunters in mind purpose. So very detailed, basically. Yeah, it's detailed. And we, I mean, we try and keep it streamlined. That's another thing that sets us apart is we we want things to be as functional as possible. We're also not going to go to the level of we made a special pocket just to hold your elk call. Like you don't need that, right? And right. that just adds complexity. Right. It adds weight. It adds zippers that can break or bust and it adds cost. Like we want to be streamlined yet provide the essential organization that you need um, and keep the lightweight package. So, I mean, our packs are going to come in with the frame, with everything under five pounds and you're talking a pack that weighs less than five pounds that can literally carry more than you can carry. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've, before I even worked for XO, carried literally half of a deboned elk out in one of their packs. Um, Steve and Lenny have tested inhuman amounts of loads, like 200 pounds plus, like more than their bodies could really handle just to make sure. I mean, hanging, like, for example, we changed one of the buckles this year um, from a different provider, a different manufacturer. And one of the things we're going to do or had done just to verify these buckles is literally hang ourselves from them. Just one of these buckles that kind of holds a little piece of the pack. want to make sure it's going to hold up. And so we're hanging, you know, 200 pound body from it. It's never going to see that kind of tension on the pack, but we just down to every little detail. We want to make sure that it's built to perform. Wow. That's, uh, that's pretty impressive. You know, all you could have said was, this pack is badass. You should just buy it. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude, I, I mean, honestly, I, I, I'm i in one of those situations where, yes, I'm working for XO. At the same time, I'm not like, I'm not the owner. I'm not, you know, responsible or what have you. And so, dude, I freaking get how hard it is to drop a ton of money yeah. on stuff. Like right. so many hunters and really I'm in your shoes. I kind of mentioned it earlier when I was talking about the clothing deal. I've had the good fortune of testing a crap ton of gear either for free or for, you know, ridiculous discounts. And yeah. a, a lot of guys don't get to do that. Right. And right. so I have uh, a super soft spot for the guys who are in my shoes, who have young kids. I mean, yeah. you know, I get that like 500 bucks is a crap ton of money. Yes. And so I, God, I don't want to blindly sell you a backpack for 500 bucks if you don't need it. But what I will say is 
if you want a pack that can do it all, um, if you don't want like the whole two pack problem I talked about, um, if you want something that's literally going to last a lifetime and where the company is actually going to stand behind it for the lifetime, like, yeah, then I think EXO is a great choice. There's other good packs out there. Um, I'm not going to deny that, but I think what we're doing is pretty awesome and it's designed specifically for the type of hunting that we talked about today. Perfect. Well, Mark, I think I can hear your neighbor moan his yard. He is. I'm sorry. <laughs> I guess it's, I mean, it's time to go. Well, that's all right. But I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking everything that we talked about, you know, the, uh, you know, talking about hunting out West and the gear and, uh, the planning and stuff, and then getting into XO. I definitely want to get you back on the, uh, uh, back on the show to see how your, uh, 2006 or 2016 hunts went. Where are you real quick? Where are you going? Anything special this year? We are going to Colorado on over the counter tag. Um, so we went into a brand new spot last year, had some awesome encounters. Long story short, came away empty handed, even though both my hunting partner and I were at full draw several times on awesome bulls. That's the way elk hunting tends to go sometimes. Right. Right. And so last year was our first year into this spot. So we're headed back next or this year, super excited knowing that they're in there and, uh, hopefully get to seal the deal this time instead of being, you know, stuck on full draw with that one stupid tree in the way and have another one of those stories. Perfect. Well, Hey, again, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, man. Well, Hopefully this podcast made your Monday suck just a little bit less. Uh, first off, I want to say thank you to Mark for coming on the show and spending a good chunk of his Sunday talking to me. Really appreciate that. Uh, as always, thank you guys, the listeners, very, 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 very much for tuning in, downloading, wherever you're listening. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Uh, huge shout out to Exodus trail cameras like i said uh, go and visit exodusoutdoorgear.com if you want to find out more information and uh if you guys haven't already go leave a review on itunes five star review if you want to if you really like it leave a five star review and uh visit me on facebook and instagram and twitter and all the social media avenues i'm out there and uh what else what else uh, if, uh hopefully you guys uh got to do some whitetail activities this weekend i however did not i built a play set for my kids it's gigantic and uh, it took a lot longer than i thought it was going to take but that's all right you got to do those things for the ones that you love and if this upcoming weekend or sometime this week you're going to be out in the timber setting up tree stands getting ready for the season wear your damn safety harness have a good week